Welcome to The Local Authority, the podcast by Local Government Chronicle and TPX Impact. Each month, we bring together leading figures from within and around local government to discuss the sector's future. If you enjoy listening to The Local Authority, hit the subscribe button to have new episodes delivered to your device each month. You can share this podcast with your colleagues by going to lgcplus.com forward slash podcast. Welcome to the Local Authority, the podcast from Local Government Chronicle and TPX Impact. I'm Sarah Kalkin, the LGC editor. The Local Authority brings together some of the biggest names in and around local government to discuss some of the biggest issues facing the sector. The theme is one of change, how councils can change their area and their organisations for the better. Today we're looking at the future of social housing, including the increased role of the regulator of social housing. There are currently more than a million people on the waiting list for social housing, as a growing housing crisis has increased demand and seen an expansion in the use of temporary accommodation. Meanwhile, policies such as the right to buy and the encouragement of councils to transfer their stock to housing associations or arm's length management organisations has changed the face of what would once have been known as council estates. Five years ago, the events of the Grenfell Tower fire highlighted the tragic consequences of not listening to tenants and the expanded role for the regulator of social housing, which is currently being legislated for in Parliament, is a direct response to that. To discuss all this and more, I'm joined by Pam Smith, Chief Executive of Newcastle City Council and Housing Spokesperson for SOLIS, or the Society of Local Authority Chief Executives and Senior Managers. Jim Bennett, Assistant Director for Policy and Communications at the Regulator of Social Housing. Joanne Drew, Co-Chair of the London Housing Directors Group and Housing and Regeneration Director at the London Borough of Enfield. And Stuart McKenzie, Head of Client Experience for TPX Impact. So, hello everyone. Hello. Hello. First of all, I wonder if I could come to, to you, Joanne, just to get a sense of what are the kind of pressures you're facing in Enfield at the moment around housing? Yes, Sarah, certainly. Um, and I can also talk about the Pan-London perspective uh, as well, uh, given that I'm co-chair of the London Housing Directors Network. So I think uh, at the moment we are facing unprecedented um, homelessness demand pressures. Um, that's kind of illustrated by the sort of very high level of uh, families in temporary accommodation. So we have 55,000 um, households in TA at the moment, um, and that's 68% of the national total. So temporary accommodation is very much a, a London issue. The number of people who are homeless uh, and in priority need has risen by 52% over recent years. And certainly post-pandemic, you know, we're really seeing those pressures rising. At the same time, um, we're obviously working in a challenging financial context for local government. Um, we've seen real-term cuts in, in the last 10 years of 63%. So that's a cumulative loss 
from our budgets in London of four billion pounds. Um, and that obviously has a real impact on how you can support the homelessness and housing agenda. Um, similarly, for our housing revenue accounts, which support and fund our council homes, the um, 1% rent cut that we experienced for four years, um, ending in 1920, resulted in £459 million less um, income into London business plans than we would have had had the policy um, continued. So real financial pressures in responding to sort of increasing demands of our residents in, in London. So a really challenging time. But um, as we do in, in local government, responding with a range of creative initiatives, I'm really pleased with our progress on council house building. So uh, we've started 11,000 new council homes in London since 2018, when we were kind of empowered to do so with the lifting of the debt cap. Um, we've also um, set up different delivery vehicles to address homelessness. So, for example, um, the Capital Letters Initiative, which is a pan-London PRS procurement um, vehicle, is really showing good progress now in enabling us to uh, maximise the amount of private rented homes we ca can uh, secure for residents, but importantly, securing them locally in home boroughs. So, since we've had this vehicle, 60 odd percent of all procurement is now in host boroughs as opposed to the 40 percent prior to that vehicle being established so pressures but oh you know we've got lots of energy and solutions to address them that's that's good to hear and pam could you perhaps share with us the situation in newcastle and also what, what you're hearing from um you know chief execs around the country on their their housing pressures yeah uh, we are not building enough social housing. I think that's fair to say. And we need we need more of it. We need more high quality housing and we need housing that's intergenerational. This isn't about building ghettos for older people. Um, you know, one in four of us will be over 65 by 2050. So this is about making sure that we're building houses for the future. Um, but also we have a present problem in terms of housing. Um, you know, I think it was the Halifax that produced uh, their quarter uh, one report for 2022 saying the price to income ratio was seven to one, meaning it's the least affordable on record. And I think that statistic uh, means that social housing has never been more important. I mean, in Newcastle, um, we've built a thousand new homes a year. Um, even during the pandemic, which has been incredible, we have successfully bid for the government's affordable homes programme. We got one of the largest single authority uh, amounts of money to, to help us do that. We've also put in bids for the energy efficiency improvements and obviously the next steps accommodation. But I think the very fact that I've named those three different sources of funding indicates that we have a problem in that there isn't one coherent way of funding uh, social housing or the needs of people who need specialist housing. It's different pots of money supporting um, housing provision when fundamentally what we need to see is long-term funding for local government, which can then give us the platform to have a long-term approach to meeting housing need. 
So I think from my perspective, especially Newcastle, where we've got a growing population, we need to make sure that we build more, but build in the right way and have that high quality housing that meets the needs of our population. But social housing has got to be a key platform for that. We've seen since the 1980s a huge reduction in the number of people living in social housing. I think it's around, we have fewer, um, 1.4 million fewer households in social housing than we did in 1980 um, with a growing population. And social housing offers people a stability of tenure, which isn't to be underestimated. With that stability of tenure comes the ability to access employment easier, better family life, and social housing helps us to create those thriving communities and make sure that we've got resilience. And I think um, a lesson from COVID is we need to have more resilient and thriving communities and having more social housing is a key component of that. Sure. Thank you. Thank you, Pam. And, and Jim, from your perspective, you know, from the outside looking in, I mean, how do you see these kind of pressures that that councils are under around housing manifesting themselves in your work yeah well um, absolutely recognize the um, pressures that there are on the social housing system as a whole you know we're we're obviously very cognizant of that and the way in which we regulate both local authority providers of uh, social housing and, and housing associations i guess the key thing in the in the local authority sector is with the social housing regulation bill now in parliament uh, changes coming in the way that we regulate uh, local authorities um, with social housing, and the ultimate vision of that bill is to is to reshape the relationship between landlords and tenants, and um, to improve and strengthen the relationship, and put into greater focus the quality of homes and services that are provided. And for us, as the regulator, that means moving our consumer remit, where it is at the moment, as a reactive uh, approach to um to a proactive approach i think it's important to understand that in in the current context you know bearing in mind all of those pressures local authorities already need to meet our consumer standards and those cover issues about ensuring that tenants live in safe decent and high quality homes and that they have their voices heard but at the moment the way we regulate we can only rely on invest and investigate issues when when matters are referred to us so that, that happens either by landlords doing that themselves or um, referrals come from tenants or, or other stakeholders. And the move to that proactive remit means that we'll in future be on the front foot and looking for assurance from landlords that they are meeting our standards. And that's both for private register providers and for local authorities. Um, and also as part of this uh, new regime, we'll be updating our consumer standards uh, so they reflect the, the vision and the new objectives that are set out in the bill. So this is all, a, it's, a, it's a major shift. Sure, sure. And Stuart, just, just to bring you in, I mean, you work for a number of councils on housing projects. I mean, how do, what's your sense of what the pressures are like and, and how councils are finding ways to, to manage them? Yeah, I, I mean, I think we're in a unique position that we get, I can only describe as a privilege to work with organisations across this kind of ecosystem of housing. So we've done a lot of work with councils, London boroughs and outside from kind of revenues, benefits, housing registers, temporary accommodation, uh, right through to housing departments, but also other kind of players in this sector like Homes England and 
even further upstream, the land registry, the buying and selling of land that kind of feeds into this process. I think a lot of what Pam said really resonates to me in that there is an issue around funding. Like there is definitely, you know, demand is outstripping supply. Totally agree with what Joanne's saying around councils are forever resilient and creative around how they provide the best services to their residents. But they have so much local knowledge and understanding of the needs that they're trying to address, so much pressure against them. And there's a massive need for both a joining up of all of those kind of people in that sector who are working on effectively the same systemic problem, um, but a massive injection of funding needed, certainly at a local level, I think, um, to provide better outcomes for residents and communities and neighbourhoods. Um, yeah. Thank you. Jim, can I just come back, back to you? Well, you kind of set out for us very very neatly this kind of headlines around the changes that are coming, but I think it would be useful to, to explore that in, in a bit more detail. And so how will this sort of reactive shift from reactive to proactive feel different to councils? And is there anything they need to be doing that they're not already doing to comply with that? Yeah, sure. So um, as I said, it will, it, will be, um, it will be a big shift. So as I said at the moment, we, um, in relation to our consumer standards, we at the moment we only engage with local authorities where matters have been referred to us, either by the, the local authority itself um, or where something's come to our attention via tenants or a whistleblower or via um, an MP or a councillor. Uh, but in future, uh, we will be going out and proactively seeking assurance from all uh, local authority providers uh, of social housing about your compliance with our standards. And um, the, the approach that we'll be taking with that is building on on the in-depth assessment model that we currently use uh, with uh, private registered providers, housing associations. And that means, you know, asking um, asking landlords for upfront information about the assurance that you have, that you know that you're meeting our standards or or where you're not, what, you know, what you understand about what you need to, to address that. Uh, and then also we'll be looking for kind of evidence uh, about uh, that supports that assurance that you have. Um, so, for instance, on an issue like decent homes, um, so the decent home standard obviously applies to all, all so, so social housing. There's an expectation that all social housing meets that standard. Um, we'll be we'll be asking you for um, stock condition information that you have that underpins the assurance you have that you're meeting that decent home standard. And then we'll also um, look to kind of corroborate that with evidence that we have, for instance, from the new tenant satisfaction measures uh, that we'll be introducing, um, which we've just uh, consulted on earlier this year, which will provide a mechanism by which, which, you know, we'll get intelligence from tenants about um, the extent to which uh, they think that they are living in good quality homes. Um, so that, that's, that's the kind of the, the difference, uh, the difference that it will make. I guess in terms of kind of like how local authorities can prepare. So our, our message is, yeah, I mean, the, you know, the legislation is, it's on its way through parliament at the moment. So, um, so don't wait. Um, it, you know, the new approach isn't going to kick in overnight, but there are practical steps that you can take now to get ready. Um, and the first is to, you know, really to make sure that you're complying with our existing standards. So, Late, um, probably next year, subject to the legislation part being passed, uh, we will be updating those standards. But 
um, they are likely to cover similar territory to the existing standards regime that we have. So, you know, you, local authorities should already be complying with those standards anyway, but um, making sure that you are doing so is a, is a good way to uh, to start to prepare. Sure, and I think some councils have recently been self-referring to you. Um, why is that? And is that, do you expect to see more yeah. of that? Uh, yeah, I mean, we... So uh, earlier, earlier this year, just in uh, in July, uh, we published our annual consumer regulation review, which summarises all of the the kind of consumer casework that we've had from the previous year. Uh, and there were, there were a few local authority cases in there, and I think it's fairly safe to say we've had a kind of a bit of an uptick, kind of post Grenfell Tower fire, in our local authority cases that we've been dealing with. Quite a lot of those are, have been have been self referred. And, and that kind of openness is an important part of our regulatory approach. And I think, you know, where providers do self-refer, I mean, okay, so you've identified there's a problem where, which, which means you're not compliant with our standards, but self-referral does at least say something about the leadership and culture of an organization, uh, which is a positive. Um, uh, the, the kind of the cases that we've had in, uh, recently over the, over the last year. So, um, Three of them were in relation to compliance with health, various health and safety requirements. So things like fire safety, electrical safety, asbestos and water safety. And, and three local authorities self-referred to us um, where they'd identified, you know, quite significant issues with degree of assurance that they had about the health and safety. Um, and that, you know, they had identified that, that there were large numbers of their homes that hadn't been subject to the kinds of checks that they ought to have been. Um, and those local authorities notified us and we've been working with them subsequently to to kind of address the issues that they identified and that's about you know mitigating any immediate risks to tenants reconciling the data that they have and also strengthening their systems and processes to make sure that that kind of thing doesn't happen again so that was uh there were kind of a few cases that 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 sort of fell into that category um so, so do you, do you uh, think it's fair to say that the, you know Grenfell is already having a sort of legacy in terms of making councils kind of look again at, at their provision and ensuring that it, it is up to standard? Well, I mean, we still see you know relatively small numbers of cases uh, from local authorities each year, um, but as I said, there's definitely been a shift, you know, post Grenfell. So, um, and I, um, you know, the, the, the kind of, uh, the sample probably isn't big enough to draw too many conclusions about, to be definitive about this, but, you know, um, you know, I think our judgment would probably be is, is it's not that things have got worse after Grenfell. I think it's actually more that there's just that kind of greater awareness about compliance, um, with, with health and safety requirements. And, and that's, and that's led to, um, an increase in, uh, in self-referrals. I think I would also say that, that from our perspective, you know, we have upped our engagement with local authorities kind of post Grenfell. Uh, and also, I mean, not just Grenfell, I think also we had a few, um, a few, we've had a few cases in, in, in the, in the recent past, not, not just in the last year, but before where we've had, uh, we've had issues referred to us by whistleblowers, uh, and, and, you know, quite serious breaches of our standards with respect to kind of health and safety and that kind of thing. Um, and I think, you know, off the back of those as well, we've been kind of particularly keen to make sure um, that local authorities are aware of 
their obligations to comply with our standards and 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 also kind of you know refer uh, serious breaches uh, to us and that and so that you know that's been happening and so that in in of itself is 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 a good thing uh, and we'll have to but you know as we move to a, a more proactive approach um, we'll we'll have to see uh, see what that that kind of shows in terms of uh, compliance more broadly. Sure, sure. And, and Joanne, how how prepared do you feel London boroughs are for, for these changes coming in? And Yeah, so I think we really welcome the sort of positive and constructive partnership that we've been building with the regulator, uh, both to sort of help inform the bill um, as it progresses and, and to sort of help... Um, prepare the regulator by understanding what local government, how it operates and the context in London. Um, so, so we really welcome that. Um, and it's kind of like a catalyst for us to kind of reinvigorate our thinking about what does a great landlord service look like in a local authority at the moment? I think, you know, we had had in the past different delivery models, whether we did stock transfers or whether we set up Almos and different vehicles. Many of our council housing services are now in-house. Um, so it provides a really good opportunity to step back and think, what's the purpose of council housing in for our local communities? And very much we want to meet industry standards, but we see them as the start of and the foundations of the service. And as Pam was saying, you know, the service needs to deliver for a wide range of outcomes in our communities. So so it's around thinking, how how do we do both things? I'm also quite conscious that as councils have been doing development and regeneration, very exciting. Um, we want to make sure that all the energy doesn't go into that part of our role and that we continue to deliver um, great housing services. And also recognising, I think this is really important, that as we're building uh, new homes and regenerating places, we're creating mixed tenure places. So with that comes a real need to look at how we manage mixed tenure. So we're no longer managing mono tenure um, as we have done in the past. So how do we do mixed tenure management really well where we serve the whole community? One of the things we've been doing as, as housing directors is a collaborative piece of thinking about what are the pillars of a effective, high-performing council housing service. Um, and as Jim kind of mentioned, right at the top there is vision. Um, do we have a compelling vision and do we have a good strategy behind it that's backed up by a realistic financial plan? And then what's the quality of our leadership? And that means political leadership and corporate leadership, as well as um, housing leadership. And then, of course, it goes down into how we're supporting the management of the service. How are we performing? How do we know we're performing? How do we ensure compliance? Um, and then what assurance does the council have overall that we are delivering um, according to the purpose um, and aims that we're setting out? So really interesting piece of work there that we're going to launch in September, which should hope give some frameworks and ideas for all boroughs to kind of get behind and, and think about their action plans. Yeah, I can see lots of nodding all, all around there. <laughs> Does anyone want to come in on that point? Or uh, Yeah, Pam. Yeah, I think what Joanne said is absolutely right. Um, the regulatory framework gives us an opportunity to do things differently. It also gives the government assurance as well, which I think is really important that 
as we've got, you know, the, the different funding streams are very, very welcome. As I said before, we could do with more longer term funding, but at least we've got a regulatory framework now that can deal with the expansion of social housing. And it gives that assurance that this isn't just about a quality home. This is about a quality community um, where we can manage mixed tenure effectively because it's seen as um, looking at the communities as a whole. We can also look at how infrastructure impacts on the quality of those communities and, and how that feeds into the regulatory framework because houses aren't just built in isolation, they're built in the context of infrastructure. And I would like to see the definition of infrastructure changed a little bit and widened a little bit. So it's not just about the roads, the schools, it's about what is the available childcare in that area? What is the available, and not the bricks and mortars of a health service, but the actual community health service that goes in there. So I think the regulatory framework is a really exciting start to having a wider conversation about how we give assurance to our residents and our financiers on how we are really impacting and creating thriving communities through social housing. And I think that is the really exciting part. And also, how do we monitor innovation through that framework? Because we know that if we're going to have sustainable housing and meet our net zero targets, that we're going to have to create much more sustainable housing for the future. And how can we have a collective conversation about how we monitor that and how we judge that? Because what we want to do is make sure that we're having an innovative conversation with regulators that allows us to um, have test beds and pilots. Because I think Joanne would agree that in local government, um, we've got lots of energy, we're ready to serve, but we also want to do that in an innovative way that future proofs what we're offering our residents and we involve as well. And I'd like to see the regulator involving our younger people in some of this future thinking, what did what did they want from a regulator? What is top of their mind? So I think there's real opportunities to have a partnership dialogue, regulators, local government, central government coming together and saying, this is one of the most fundamental issues of our time, housing, and how are we going to um, corral everybody? Not that everybody needs corralling, that's probably not quite the right word, but how are we gonna bring people together to solve this really difficult issue and also how are we going to bring the private sector and all the funding streams together to say this is going to be be the focus and I think there's a real opportunity to to do that. So um, hearing from from you Pam and from you Joanne there's a real desire to build more homes and, and you're and you're both making some inroads there but you'd like to do more I mean what's the biggest change you'd like to see sort of a national policy level that would make that that easier um joanne well um i have to start with it's all about grant rates i'm afraid and and never has it been so important in the current sort of uh, inflationary environment that we've got really putting pressures on um materials and supply chains etc so uh, we do need 
uh, high levels of grant to sort of accelerate um, and continue our house building programs. I think um, the it, it's really important to to think about how we improve existing homes um, through regeneration as well. Um, and we, we do welcome the Decent Homes to standard. Um, we will need funding um, to deliver that um, in addition to all the other pressures that we have on on housing revenue accounts. So I think um, the second ask would be a new framework for delivering new homes alongside improving existing homes through regeneration. And I think picking up Pam's point around the general issue of separate and multiple funding streams, if we could invest uh, public money in places which are about delivering new homes, retrofitting existing homes um, and looking at a wider range of tenures um, and bringing those together as communities, we can start thinking about the kind of infrastructure that is needed for communities to live in a sort of net zero community, which is part of our climate change ambitions. Um, and it's only if we can create a pooling of public sector resources that we then start to get the foundations to be able to drive in private investment where we can do things so much more effectively and strategically rather than looking at individual homes and how we tackle new build or retrofitting. So really a plea around how do we think about places and investing strategically in them um, and their homes. So yeah, that's really coming through this whole sort of holistic view of, of, of a place and all the different tenures. Is, is the housing revenue account then sort of a barrier to, to that or does it need more flexibility around it? Um, no, I think, I mean, obviously the housing revenue account is for the benefit of tenants um, and leaseholders and, you know, it's not there to support other tenures. But what it can do is to provide a kickstart to a supply chain, for example, to enable that to create both the skills. If you take retrofit, we need to more skills in the green uh, industries and economies and we need supply chains to know that they've got a continuing level of work to deliver. So if we can invest through council housing in those initiatives, then that starts to create the capacity then to to build that for other tenures. So we're not using social housing money, obviously, for other tenures, but we're using it as a way to invest and create um, a better response from the marketplace as well. Sure. And Pam, did you want, could you come in on that question of what's the, the biggest national policy change you'd like to see to help build more homes? Yeah, I think um, just to follow up on what Joanne said in terms of grants, I would specifically like to see more grant for brownfield land funding. I think that would significantly help what we do um, in those kind of post-industrial um, towns and cities. I think that is a given. Um, I think we have great relationships with Homes England and I think their role I would like to see increased and their remit increased so that they can look at areas in a very holistic way. It doesn't mean to say they don't do it now, but just to give them maybe some more powers might help in that area. And for me, I, I would like to follow up on what Joanne said about looking at areas in terms of mixed tenure, what we can do. The role of social housing in growing the skills, supply chain and the economy 
of local areas because economic growth is um, a big issue for us all. And I think you can use social housing and house building to regenerate the economy and build a set of skills which are green skills, but skills anyway, so that you're not you're not just building houses, you're building those mixed tenure communities, you're building that aspiration. And it's um it's a vision based in reality. Um, so and I think that's really important because if you engage people in areas and you skill them up, you're kind of future proofing what's going to happen in in towns and cities across England. So I think we we kind of I'd like to see housing come up the agenda as a mechanism for growing the economy because we're underestimating the the skills level needed to actually take housing to that next level but it can be a catalyst for that economic growth um, and that skills improvement in local areas and I think I, I would like to see that explicitly rec recognised by government and that this isn't about just talking to local authorities um, with their social housing hat on, but it is, as Joanna said, looking at areas and how we um, kind of facilitate that mixed tenure that is going to build in resilience to our communities. So I think that is the, the play-shaping role of uh, local government, um, you know, under the levelling up policy um, is really, really, really important. So I'd kind of like to see housing being more explicit in national policy terms around that it is an engine room for changing communities, but also driving economic growth. Does it concern you then that there seems to be a move away from the target around 300,000 new homes a year? Is that going to lead to a loss of focus? I, I think um, it was helpful to have a target, but I think what we need is a target that's backed up with the policies that are going to deliver it. Um, and I think actually that's more important than um, kind of a, t a target. I think we need a set of policies and funding streams that are going to deliver more housing across the UK, but that it's it's done in conjunction with community engagement. I, I think that's that's the, the other part of the conundrum. So I think it's the policies that are going to un, underpin the delivery of the new housing that are more important with that explicit ambition that we need more more housing. I think there's something really interesting in, um, I think Joanne mentioned it earlier around mixed tenures as well. Ultimately, we're in an environment where just building new homes, if actually some of your stock never kind of frees up, um, is almost a false economy, right? And it goes back to what Pam's saying around the infrastructure. Like housing is, yes, a really important piece of the puzzle, but that's an opportunity to give people better employment opportunities to be people who are using family services. Social housing shouldn't hopefully be the last point on a lot of people's housing journey. And that means that that stock can be reused by others. But it, like I say, it's an important part of the puzzle, but it's not the complete picture. It's about joining those things together and providing that kind of social infrastructure um, and that economy around the housing as well. Um, yeah, that kind of community, neighbourhood, place-based approach uh, to housing that's needed. And I think, Stuart, you have some experience using data to kind of to, to do that. Could you say a bit more about, about that? Yeah, I mean, 
I don't want to be one of those people who says data is the new oil because I don't believe it. But I think it's like technology and digital does have a place in all of this. Um, we've talked about a lot of things, you know, from the, the planning perspective of this right through to the delivery and placing people, matching people to the right accommodation. All of that generates data, which is useful and valuable. And going back to Pam's point, I think there's, you know, one of the things, not necessarily policy change, but I think there's much more investment needed, whether that's private innovation, but in that technology space around how do we use data better to gather insight, real-time information that helps policy and decision-making across the entire system. We've done some really interesting work at varying different levels of scale. Some of the work we've done with Hackney quite some time back now looked at their temporary accommodation cohorts and just actually looking at the numbers and the kind of move on activity again trying to get people out of temporary accommodation into settled homes whether that be social housing or back into the private renter sector and just looking at the the point in which you make an intervention in someone's journey can make a massive difference to the outcome so actually um, the implementation of the Homelessness Reduction Act was really interesting. There's some really, again, positive opportunities in that legislation around coming up with a personal housing plan. But it's about designing those services with those interventions in mind. So actually, once we've placed someone into temporary accommodation, we've accepted a housing duty. We shouldn't stop a housing, a personal housing plan there. That's the point where you kind of want to double down and go, okay, what, how do we take a strengths-based approach to understanding what assets that person might have that could move them out of temporary accommodation? back into more settled accommodation by freeing up that accommodation for someone else who might be more vulnerable, but also providing a better outcome. And that's all just based on having a better understanding of the cohorts and the needs of those residents based on, you know, the data that you hold about them. Unfortunately, the, the kind of the software market around local government and some of these services is, you know, woefully out of date. There's not a huge amount of change in that sector. And it needs kind of, it needs funding, it needs innovation. Um, and data can be part of that solution, right? So even simple things like opening up our data around housing needs. So housing registers, like how many, what is the shape of housing needs in various different parts of the country? That could um, be some kind of, um, I don't know, innovation challenge to the private sector to say, okay, now you understand the need better and you have this data you know, there's opportunities there and partnerships that, that could help that situation. But unfortunately, the data isn't, you know, it's there, but it takes a lot of effort to find it and stitch it together. So I think we all play a role in trying to bring those things together. And certainly Homes England, Pam, Pam they're doing great work in this space already, as are others. I think it's just about joining up those opportunities and those people who are already doing that stuff, sharing that best practice and, and making those connections across across the system. Yeah, I'd, I'd really reinforce what Stuart said there about the importance of data and quite a lot of our casework that we see, uh, it's failures in uh, data and systems that, that lead to uh, situations where tenants are living in poor quality homes or even uh, in unsafe situations. And so that, that point about the importance of having accurate and up-to-date data about tenants' homes and about their diverse needs is is absolutely fundamental because without this, landlords can't have any assurance that their tenants are in safe homes or enjoying good quality services. And that's just, it is really fundamental. Sure, sure. We're kind of running out of time here and I feel like we've scratched the surface on lots of issues and there's much more to be said. One thing we haven't really touched on yet is around, uh, Joanne, you mentioned it in passing, re retrofit and I just wonder if you'd say a bit more about what uh, what's happening in London around that and are there 
plans to for a mass yeah. retrofit program of, of council housing? There certainly are. Um, and some say it's like a world uh, class plan uh, to address their kind of 3.7 million homes in London um, and bring them to EPCB by 2030. So it's an ambitious goal um, with a, a price tag of around £49 billion. So that's why I'm really keen to think about joining up all sources of investment in places so that we uh, have the best chance of delivering that. Um, we recently uh, were the leaders uh, or winners of the award Leadership in Climate Change for our programme, which we were really proud of. And one of the reasons why we think uh, we, we've, we've achieved that is the kind of leadership we've had for the programme. So London councils uh, have kind of created a climate change action strategy, which all boroughs are part of. And we've benefited from having really strong political leadership, cross-party political leadership for our programme, and then supported by housing directors, creating local plans within our uh, 10-year strategy to deliver locally. Um, we've got a programme director now in place. Um, we're working with a stakeholder group, including government partners, um, the Association of Colleges, reflecting the need to develop the skills agenda and the green economy, um, and the business sector and uh, housing associations and other key players, so that we are looking um, at how we can develop uh, this across all tenures solution for retrofitting. So it is an ambitious plan and we've got all the building blocks in place now. I'm challenging financial economic climate to deliver that because we're finding that many of the government funded initiatives are now the costs are increasing because of all the reasons that we understand. But um, we you know we've got this clear vision um, and pathway to delivering decarbonisation in our homes. So yeah, really looking forward to the next year, um, which will see some real strong progress on shifting those EPC ratings, which are really important, uh, addressing the cost of living crisis that we've now got. And I think just to sort of end, one of our short term priorities is to focus on insulation, because that's one of the, the quick wins for residents. The heating solution is, is more complex, sometimes can be more expensive initially. So we, we have a big campaign to focus on improving insulation before winter. Sure, thank you. Um, any final thoughts or, or final points before we wrap up? Um, well, uh, just just in terms of uh, the upcoming changes to the regulatory regime, I think we, we've got kind of three three kind of key points that we'd love people to take away. Uh, we touched on them, a couple of them a, a little bit. So just really the first is just about openness, and that's at the heart of how we regulate. You know, ultimately, and, and it's great hearing the kind of, you know, leadership that kind of Joanne and Pam are talking about, but ultimately kind of, you know, delivering safe, good quality homes and, and housing services should be about you know the kind of fundamental DNA of your organisation, not something you do because the regulator tells you to do it. Um, and so that kind of openness and, and, and leadership is really uh, important, and and that relates to that the, those issues about self referral that we we uh, we talked about before. And then second is that, that yeah, there's that point about accurate and up to date data about your homes and services and the needs of your tenants. And then I think the third thing is about engagement. 
and engagement with uh, with tenants. If you engage with your tenants, you're going to be better prepared for the new approach to regulation because that's going to be a big emphasis on that expectations in that space. It's clearly part of the government's ambition about rebalancing the relationship between landlords and tenants. And, and listening to your tenants and hearing what they tell you about your services is critical to ensuring that their needs are being met and that ultimately you're, um, you're, you're delivering good quality services. Thank you, Pam. I'd just like to advocate for the word more. Uh, so I think we we need, um, you know, more fair housing. We need more affordable housing. Uh, we need more homes. And I think we've got the opportunity to do that. But we need more resilient communities where that mixed housing tenure is a fundamental part and social housing is a fundamental part of having those resilient communities, but also growing the skills and future-proofing. So I think I'm going to advocate for the word more, um, if that's okay, Sarah. Thank you. Yeah, that, that seems like um, a good a good point to end on. I think it's been it's been a really great discussion and it's actually been really positive to hear how much councils are able to do and are pushing to do, um, even in the absence of some of the national funding streams and, and policy levers that, that would make things easier. But it's encouraging to know that there's a lot happening regardless. Um, and hopefully we, we may see some of those changes that you would like to see uh, come through soon. So thank you everyone for, for taking part today. Um, and thank you for listening. We'll see you on the next episode of The Local Authority. This podcast was brought to you by LGC and TPX Impact. Local Government Chronicle, or LGC, is the leading title for senior local government officers and the authoritative voice of the sector. To subscribe to LGC for full online and print access, go to lgcplus.com. TPX Impact is a change agency on a mission to build 21st century public sector institutions, which are catalysts for change in the internet and climate era to radically improve outcomes for communities. For more information, go to tpximpact.com. TPX Impact, transformation that matters.